Well, please turn your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, we're in the second chapter. We'll start in verse 8 this morning. 1 Timothy 2 is on page 991 of the Bible underneath the seed if you need it. As we begin this morning, I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine that, that aliens from another galaxy have visited the earth. Let's suspend the theological problems with such a scenario for a moment and imagine that aliens are real and they've come. They've come to visit us. And upon their arrival, the aliens discover some really fascinating things about the inhabitants of this planet, the, the humans as they call themselves. The aliens discover that, that among the humans are two sexes. And while these two genders are similar in many ways, they're not identical. In the unity of humanity, there seems to be just a wonderful diversity among the species, a diversity of gender that seems to even complement the other, both biologically and in everyday life. So for instance, the aliens discover that, that what makes the genders fundamentally distinct from, from one another is even in their reproductive organs, right? That these things complement one another so that the human race can reproduce. But, but then they discover other biological differences as well. One sex is typically taller, stronger, and hairier, for the most part. There are exceptions. On the other hand, the other sex is typically shorter, less strong, and less hairy. And as the aliens interact with these two genders, they come to realize that, that generally speaking, again, although there are exceptions, one gender gravitates toward nurturing and supporting relationships, even as they're built to support and nurture children within a family. The other gender isn't non-relational, but it seems to be especially hardwired for protection and provision, especially within the family unit. The more they live among humans, the more the aliens understand how it would really be inappropriate in a, in a dangerous situation for that latter gender to hide in safety while leaving the responsibility of protection to the former gender. The aliens soon realize that if the distinctions between the genders were to collapse, it would mean the collapse of human life on earth. Well, now let's take this far-fetched illustration a step further. Let's imagine that these aliens were to be escorted one Sunday to a local Christian church. And to prep the aliens for what they're about to encounter, their host told them, well, what you're going to find in the church is that, is that one gender has been commanded in their scripture to be the spiritual pace setters for the church. And the qualified ones from this gender serve as the guardians of the church to be its shepherd leaders through teaching and equipping. The other gender is equally as important in the life of the church. In fact, it's, it's indispensable. They're to build up the church as, as learners and caregivers and servants and nurturers. Now, based upon what the aliens had already learned about the differences between the sexes, which roles do you think they'd, they'd assign to the respective genders within the life of the church? Friends, we come this morning to one of the most controversial passages in the entire New Testament, even among those who profess to be Christians. 1 Timothy 2, 8-15 contain Paul's instructions about men and women in the life of the church. And I'm not saying it's as easy as that illustration makes it seem. 
But I think the reason that this passage often ruffles feathers has less to do with the scripture's clarity and more to do with the influence of the culture upon, our, upon the church. In other words, unlike the aliens in the illustration, we humans have been immersed in certain cultural waters. Over the last hundred years, there have been wonderful advances in the United States and in the world regarding the way women are treated. In the West, women by and large have equal rights under the law and an equal standing in society. At least that's the goal. This type of egalitarian progress is right and good and I would argue has been influenced by Christianity. However, with these advances is an accompanying ethos that the equality of rights implies the sameness of roles in every area. If women are not given the same opportunity or responsibility of men in every single area, well, then it's evidence of misogyny or chauvinism. If men are understood to be the head of the home, it's, it's not viewed as loving, but as patriarchal and oppressive. If the office and function of elder is reserved for qualified men in the church, it's not, it's not viewed often as life-giving, but as antiquated and even harmful. The long-standing, centuries-long biblical understanding of a robust complementarianism, that is that men and women are created equal in dignity and value as image bearers, yet having complementary roles, complementing roles in the home and the church, that understanding is so often jettisoned for a more culturally fashioned model, a model that flattens out the God-designed gender distinctions and responsibilities in the name of equality. So what gives? What gives? How can Christianity on one hand promote women's rights and protection and yet also so clearly teach male leadership in the home and in the church? Maybe society is right and the church has been wrong. Is that it? Have Christians for centuries had a sub-biblical view of roles in the home and the family, and, and just now through advances in society, where we finally come to realize the freedoms that we're to pursue? Well, friends, I, I think, can think of few better passages to study and answer to these questions about the roles of men and women in the church than our passage this morning, 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Let's read it together. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Friends, these verses that we just read are part of a larger letter from the Apostle Paul to his protege in ministry, Timothy. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to set this struggling church in order. In light of the false teaching that plagued the church, Timothy was to, to steer this church back toward the gospel doctrine and help the church prioritize gospel-centered life together. 
We even saw this at the beginning of chapter 2 where Paul said that the church is to prioritize a far-reaching, gospel-centered prayer in their corporate life. And now in verses 8 to 15, Paul transitions from instructing the whole church to specific instructions for men and women in the church, for brothers and sisters. Men in verse 8, women in verses 9 to 15. Paul understands, friends, that if the gospel is to be recovered and preserved in Ephesus, it will happen as both men and women fulfill the roles to which God has called them. Here's the main idea of 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. I trust it will be the main idea of this sermon. Brothers and sisters, our roles in the church uniquely reflect the beauty of God's design and so commend the gospel to others. Brothers and sisters, our respective roles within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, they uniquely reflect the beauty of God's creative design. And therefore, they commend the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. Two points this morning from the two large sections of the text. Number one, from from verse eight, men set the spiritual pace. Number two, women pursue the right beauty. Men set the spiritual pace. Women pursue the right beauty. Of course, in the text, Paul seems to steer the ladies, the sisters, to pursuing the right beauty in what you wear and in how you worship. Beloved, even in this sensitive and controversial issue, we Christians are called not to take our cues from the culture, but to rest on the authority of what God has said in His Word. We're called to worship the creator who designed the genders and who sent his son to redeem and to rule the church. In a way, we're called to view the world from the outside as the alien did in my harebrained illustration. As we come to see that that God's instructions for men and women in the church reflect the beauty of his design from the beginning, I pray that, that we'll realize that submitting ourselves to his instructions best bring about our flourishing and best showcase his glory for a watching world. Let's look at verse eight together. Number one, men set the spiritual pace. Paul begins with clear instructions to the men of the church. Even though he frames things in terms of his desire, you see that, I desire that men pray. Remember that Paul's speaking as as an apostle, as a, a special authoritative messenger of King Jesus himself. What he desires is what should happen in the life of the church in every place. And what is it that men in every place should do when the church gathers? Well, we men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul's point isn't that only the men should pray publicly when the church gathers. No, that would actually contradict other passages of Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 11, where he instructs women to pray in certain ways in the church. But friends, Paul could have addressed his instruction here in 1 Timothy to women, but he didn't. Instead, as he works outward from his instruction that the whole church pray for the salvation of all types of peoples, he wants men in the church to be out front in this effort. He stresses how important it is for the brothers in the church to be actively engaged in the public prayer and worship of the body. It ought to be abundantly evident in the church that the men pray, lifting up holy hands. 
Friends, this idea of lifting up hands in prayer, it was common in the worship of God's people in the Old Testament. It was the outward posture that signaled a humble appeal to God for His favor. Those who lifted holy hands would say, Oh Lord, I need you. We need you, Lord. But Paul here is not so much emphasizing the posture of our hands, brothers, as the posture of our hearts. After all, we're to lift up holy hands. Holy hands represent a holy life. It's the external posture of the inner reality. Think of David's words in Psalm 24. Those who stand in God's holy place must have clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, brothers, our prayer and worship ought to be the result of a life transformed by God's Spirit and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come as those who have been washed clean and forgiven and transformed. Our engagement in the the public worship and prayer life of the church flow out of a life remade by the Lord's grace in Christ. The fact that we're to lift up holy hands means, brothers, that we ought to worship sincerely. Our lives ought to match our lips to the best of our ability. We ought not to give an outward display of piety while harboring wickedness in our hearts. Raised hands shouldn't be outward posturing designed to conceal the rot of sin within. Brothers, there ought to be in each one of us a genuineness and a purposefulness about our walk with Christ. Of course, which one of us, which one of us can say that our our hands and heart are clean in and of themselves or even are clean all the time? None of us, none of us. The mark of a godly man isn't one who is perfect, but one who is repentant. The mark of a godly man isn't one who's free from falling into sin, but but one who by grace gets off the mat and sprints to the cross for forgiveness. Yes, sisters in the church are an indispensable part of the body, but brothers, God has given us the responsibility to lead and to set the pace spiritually. I'm sure we've all seen churches where it's the sisters of the church who seem to be the most zealous for Christ while the the brothers are on the sideline, absent or passive. Well, brothers, God has not called us to passivity, but to prayer. So just practically, husbands, it ought not to be left on your wife's shoulders to make sure that your family is at church. It shouldn't be that she ensures that the the worship and prayer gatherings of our church are part of the pillars of your family's life. It ought to be on your shoulders and you ought to take that responsibility seriously and joyfully. When your kids look down the aisle to observe their parents' level of engagement in the worship service, they ought not only to see mom locked into what's going on, but a dad whose heart is gripped by grace to the extent that he sings with all of his heart and who prays humbly and fervently lifting up clean hands, as it were, before the Lord. And the thing is, dads, husbands, they'll know whether it's real or not. They'll know whether you only talk the talk or whether you also walk the walk. They'll know if what animates your soul is heavenly things or earthly things, whether you're more enthusiastic about the Lord Jesus and His church or the NFL or your hobbies or your work, or whatever else. Oh, friends, may God give us here at Redeeming Grace Church husbands and dads who gladly take up the mantle to be the spiritual pace setters here at RGC. Single brothers, it's the same for you. 
You may not have a wife and family, but you ought to be an example of the believers and a model of devotion to Christ. Don't think that your singleness is your time to do what you want. No, your life is the Lord's. You too must lift up holy hands in prayer. Brothers, the mark of biblical masculinity is not whether you can handle a firearm. It's not whether you can bench more than you weigh. As I get older, I'm increasingly thankful for that. (laughs) Thankfully, it has nothing to do with whether you're a good handyman or not. Biblical masculinity is about your fulfilling your God-given role to lead and protect and provide in the spheres to which God has called you. It's a life of willing sacrifice and serving. And in the church, that means setting the pace spiritually. We're to be like the pace car that leads the field of race cars in the warm-up lap or while the caution flag is out. It's not that we can't learn from women in our lives and in the church because we do and we must, but rather we don't rely on them to do what God has given us the privilege and the responsibility to do. But notice Paul specifies a certain way that we men are to lift up holy hands in prayer. Or a certain way actually we're not to do it. He says we're to pray without anger or quarreling. These are things that often impede prayer, do they not? Perhaps for the church at Ephesus, the doctrine of the false teachers had produced conflict within the church and and men's tempers were boiling over in in hand-to-hand combat. Or maybe Paul just knows the male propensity to jockey for position and stubbornly refuse to back down from one another. Brothers, as, as much as we ought to be zealous for truth, we ought to be slow to anger. As much as we ought to be men of conviction, we ought not to be men who pick, like to pick fights about those convictions. As much as we ought to wage the good warfare, as Paul instructed Timothy, our instinct shouldn't be to set battle lines on every issue. Rather, our instinct should be toward peace. I think the Apostle Paul knew that as long as, as Timothy had men around him in the work of ministry, men who were lifting up holy hands and prayer as the spiritual pace setters for the church, he could face any obstacle that came before him. And there was hope for that church. The same is true for our church. Brothers, set the spiritual pace. Number two, women, pursue the right beauty. Pursue the right beauty. We see that in Verses 9 to 15. First of all, Paul draws our attention to pursuing the right beauty in what women wear. In verse 9, Paul, again, transitions from the men to the women. Paul's desire is likewise. There's a connector. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, you might be tempted to think of all the things for Paul to address women about. Okay, prayer I get, but clothes? Really? Friends, just remember that underlying all of this instruction about the church's worship gathering is the principle that everything done in our gatherings ought to be done for the glory of God and the edifying of His church. Paul expresses that principle clearly in 1 Corinthians 14, in another context, when he writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done for building up. 
Friends, all of us should come to our gatherings with this mindset. We come to edify. Now, we don't know exactly why Paul addressed this issue, but I think it's safe to say that that just as anger and quarreling seem to be problems among the men of the church, there also seem to be certain women who who dress to make themselves the center of attention. Given the language that Paul uses about braided hair and jewelry and expensive clothes, it, it seems like certain women likely came to the gathering for the goal of being seen. They treated church like celebrities treat the red carpet. They were out to be noticed. Paul does write that women should adorn themselves in a certain way. Did you see that? He uses the language of beauty and attractiveness, doesn't he? And yet, by the end of verse 10, it's clear that a woman's primary pursuit of attractiveness ought not to be what magnifies her outer beauty, but what magnifies her inner beauty. Paul's point is, ladies, that the way you dress reflects the type of beauty that you want to put on display. While styles and fashions, friends, have changed quite a bit, I'm sure, between the first century AD and 2022, the way culture catechizes women to display their beauty has not. Then and now, the world teaches women to show off their beauty by dressing seductively or by dressing extravagantly. Dressing seductively is usually for the goal of being thought of in a certain way by by men, And dressing extravagantly is usually for the goal of being thought of in a certain way by other women. In the Greco-Roman culture, women often wore their hair in these enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven or piled high like towers decorated with gems or gold or pearls. That's what you would have seen in the first century Vogue or Vanity Fair. In fact, this opulence of style was linked to sexual seductiveness. It's really not so different in our day, is it? Often sexually seductive attire and materialism go hand in hand. So Paul says, ladies, sisters, don't try to be the center of attention by adorning yourself with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. It's not that Paul is outlawing hairstyles or jewelry. He's not instructing women to come to church looking frumpy or or plain or unstylish. Rather, Paul insists that women dress in such a way that exhibits modesty and self-control. It's a humility and a self-restraint that doesn't flaunt yourself for the attention of others. Oh, sisters, please, please don't come to church to put yourself on display. Rather, come to contribute to God being put on display among us. Don't don't dress in a way that, that those who gather to worship the Lord and edify the Lord's people are distracted by your seductiveness or your opulence. What Paul says here is so countercultural. Sisters, the culture says that there's value and there's status and an identity to be had by dressing provocatively or extravagantly and gaining the attention of others. Marketing ads and Hollywood and the entertainment industry all scream this idea. This is the ideal woman. This is the model of beauty. This is the ultimate beauty that you should pursue with your life. And yes, sisters, if you dress to be seen, you'll get some who covet and lust after what you have. But the return from such an attempt at beauty is empty it won't deliver the satisfaction it promises. 
And that type of a beauty has a shelf life anyway. Paul's point is that true, lasting, feminine beauty that women ought to pursue is not on the outside, but rather the inner beauty that flows out of a heart transformed by God. Your identity, ladies, is not in how you look, but in who you are in Christ. He writes in verse 10, the beauty that you really should be pursuing as a Christian woman is the beauty of good works. It's a life lived to God's glory and the good of others. That's where true, lasting beauty lies. Paul says, sisters, if you want to enhance your beauty, well then love and serve others. Devote yourself to helping others fix their attention on Jesus and not you. I think Paul's point is very similar, isn't it? The Peter's in 1 Peter 3. Do not let your adorning, same word, adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Oh, friends, the beauty that every Christian sister should passionately pursue is godliness. Brothers, we ought to encourage this, shouldn't we? We ought to encourage this type of pursuit of beauty in our sisters' lives. My husbands, you should do everything you can to encourage your wife to prize and pursue this inner beauty of godliness above all. Don't mislead her, brothers. Don't mislead her because of your own inattention to her or your own materialistic focus. Remember Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And I praise the Lord for scores of these very type of women at RGC. Sisters, as for specifics on what to wear and what not to wear, I'm not going there this morning at all. But I know that there are many godly women here at RGC that would be glad to help you think through this type of practical application of these things. Paul says, pursue the right beauty in what you wear. Also, in the last few verses here, he says, pursue the right beauty in how you worship. He writes in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Friends, these are the, the two verses that make it seem like the Bible is from another planet. I admit that at first reading to modern ears, Paul's words sound harsh and restrictive. For many, Paul's words are offensive and shocking. But friends, realize that although they may shock our modern ears, they would have actually shocked Paul's ancient readers for exactly the opposite reason. What would have been remarkable to the early church friends was that women are presented as equal learners with the men in the gathering of the church. Women along with the men are equal disciples of King Jesus because it Let's face it, in Greco-Roman society, in Jewish society, men were on a, or excuse me, women were on a lower rung than the men in the social ladder. The truths of the Christian gospel, friend, raised women up as equals. Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, now friends, some have tried to twist this verse to mean or to imply a sameness of roles in the church for male and female, but that's really to miss Paul's point. 
Paul isn't speaking of roles in, in Galatians 3.28, but rather that in the gospel of Jesus, both male and female are equally embraced by grace on the same terms. They share the same spiritual benefits together as men do and therefore are equals in every way as men are. Here in our church at RGC, week after week, women sit and listen to the preaching of God's word along with the men having the same opportunity and expectation as the men in the church. And to do otherwise would be deeply wrong. We want our women here at RGC to be like Lazarus' sister Mary, who chose the better portion than her sister Martha did when she sat at the feet of Jesus to learn of him. Women are commissioned by Jesus, just like the men, to be faithful disciples and to be faithful disciple makers until he comes. But as women learn among the gathered church, they are to learn in a certain manner. Women are to learn quietly, according to verse 11. And then at the end of verse 12, Paul kind of ties a bow on this idea by saying that women are to remain quiet. Now, let me give you an example of what this means or or doesn't mean. It's true that if my kids are yelling at each other within my home, and I say to them sternly, be quiet. I may want them to shut up entirely. It could mean that. But it also might mean that I want them to settle down, to be peaceful, to be gentle toward one another. Really, context is the key. That's actually what it means here in verses 11 to 12. And how do we know that? Well, we saw last week from 1 Timothy 2.2 that Paul uses that same word. Again, context, friends, is the king. It helps us understand the meaning of hard passages. We move from the more clear to the less clear. Christians are to pray for government leaders so that we might live what? A peaceful and quiet, same word, quiet life. Paul doesn't mean there that we're to pray for our government leaders so that we live a silent life, but that we live a quiet life of peacefulness and gentleness. And so ladies, Paul isn't here instructing you to be silent in our gatherings. That would be out of step with what he commands elsewhere in his letters. (laughs) After all, you're commanded with the men to sing in the church. In 1 Corinthians 11, women pray and prophesy in the gathering of the body. No matter what you think about the gift of prophecy's relevance for today, friends, women did it in the early church. However, when the word of God is authoritatively taught and applied to the congregation, sisters, you are to listen and to learn with a quiet disposition. This does not mean at all, sisters, that you can't respond to the teaching of of God's word with a heartfelt amen. It doesn't mean that you can't ever speak in a service. Rather, it means that your posture ought to be one of gentleness, one of peacefulness, not argumentative, not disruptive, but that you commit to learn in quietness. I think it's safe to say that this probably was not happening to some degree in that church in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 5 seems to indicate that that some women in the church were being led astray by the false teachers. And one result, it seems, of that false teaching was a collapse of the clear understanding of men and women's roles in the church. And so Paul instructs women to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Paul clearly has in mind, friends, a, a submissive posture to the word as it's being taught in the gathering by the elders of the church. 
verse 12 further explains what Paul means in verse 11. How does this submissiveness look in action? Well, it's that women don't teach or exercise authority over a man. They must, they must learn in the gathering, but they must not teach in the gathering. Teaching God's word and exercising authority are the twin functions of elders in the church. In fact, the primary way that elders exercise authority is through teaching God's word to the church. This is the way that elders guard the church from false gospels. This is how we equip the church for faithful ministry. It's through, friends, a derivative authority. Not an authority that we elders possess on our own, but through an authority derived from King Jesus through his word. And here, Paul writes that women in the church ought not to grasp after that type of authority. We understand the Bible's clear teaching to be that the office of elder is reserved for qualified men. Notice Paul speaks of of the office of elder by actually speaking of the functions that elders do. Did you notice that? It's not merely that Paul here forbids a woman from elder office but also from the teaching function that elders do. So how does this look practically in our church? Well, practically here at RGC, we install only qualified men to serve as elders. And we're going to hold the line on that. We only have qualified men teach the gathered church, whereas women and men together learn as equal disciples in the gathering. And then in wisdom and other areas of ministry in the church that are very much elder-like, like the teaching of discipleship classes and leading of home groups, house to house, we've chosen to err on the side of clarity and assign those roles to men as well. Before we move on, let me tell you what, what verses 11 and 12 don't mean, okay? Several things that they don't mean. I hope this will be helpful to you. Verses 11 and 12 don't mean that women are inferior to men. In fact, one of the most dangerous ideas that Christians have imbibed from our culture is that submission implies inferiority. Friends, that may be the case sometimes, but it does not have to be. In marriage, a Christian wife is called to lovingly submit to her husband, but it does not in any way, shape, or form imply that she is inferior to him. That we should all submit ourselves to those in positions of civil government doesn't imply that we are somehow inferior to those leadership in, in leadership of, of civil government. Even Christ in his role as mediator, friends, submits himself to God. But it would be blasphemy to say that Christ is inferior to God. He is God and one with the Father. In fact, in this case, that we're looking at, in the case of women in the church, friends, it's not just that the women submit to the teaching of the word, but in fact, the men do also. So the women are no more inferior than the rest of the men in the congregation are to the male elders. I don't know if I said that exactly smoothly, but I hope it just got through. We're not talking about inferiority or superiority, but rather with a God-designed authority structure for the flourishing of the church. Friends, if for some reason you've gotten the idea that there are kind of two tiers of value in the church, the men and then the women, I do hope that you'll realize how wrong that, that is and that you will repent of that type of thinking. 
Women with men are co-heirs of God's grace in the gospel and gifted in countless ways to serve Christ's church. Maybe this afternoon, just take some time to read Romans 16, where Paul ticks off woman after woman after woman's contribution to the building up of the church and in the partnership with him in the gospel. Uh, Here at RGC, we want to free our women to serve in all the ways that God has equipped and called them to do. And praise God for sisters in our church who so regularly and faithfully and selflessly serve in a wide variety of ways. Sisters, we in the church need what you bring to the table. We need your perspective. We need your relational instincts. We need your nurturing gifts. We need your mercy ministry. And on and on and on I could go. As men in our church set the spiritual pace and as women pursue the beauty of godliness and good works, friends, our church will thrive in the gospel because this is the way that God has designed it. Second thing that these verses don't mean. These verses don't mean that women aren't capable to teach. These verses have nothing to do with the intellectual capacity or education level or specific gifting that the, that the Spirit grants to women. Presumably, if the, if the older women, a la Titus 2, if the older women are to train the younger women how to be faithful, if women are to teach their children the Scripture, then God certainly gifts them with the understanding and capability to do so. However, what we're saying is that even if a woman has a teaching gift, and even a public speaking gift, God has not designed for it to be utilized in the worship gathering of the church through authoritative preaching or teaching. These verses, friends, don't speak to gifting, but rather to assignment rooted in creation. The third thing these verses don't mean, these verses don't mean that Christian man can't learn from women. You remember that according to Acts 18, Apollos, the former pastor of the church at Ephesus, was helped in his theological knowledge through a sister named Priscilla and her husband Aquila. Priscilla in Acts 18 is actually listed first, which very well may indicate that she took the lead in teaching and training Apollos. And biblically, this was right and good and did not contradict other scripture at all. Why? Why? Because it was done privately, not in the gathering. In other words, friends, there is something unique about the church constituted together under the headship of Christ that calls for a certain order in spiritual authority. Sisters here at RGC, you have the elders' full permission and even encouragement to ask us questions about our teaching. Did you know that? You have the full permission and encouragement of the elders to give us feedback on our teaching. You have the full encouragement and permission of the elders to offer suggestions for improvement or correction on our teaching. Just know that we may accept those or we may say, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. The point is we want you to be actively involved in helping us to be the best elders we can be. The fourth thing these verses don't mean, these verses don't mean that women can't exercise authority over men in other spheres of life. The Bible speaks to two spheres in which God has given the role of headship to men, in the home and in the church. His creation institution, marriage, and his new creation institution, the church. The Bible doesn't speak to women being prohibited from serving as CEOs of companies or holding government office. Rather, these God-ordained authority structures 
are the scaffolding around marriage and the church. And of course, we know that, that marriage points to the relationship with Christ and his church. So it really shouldn't surprise us that there's a symmetry of authority in these areas. Those are the four things these verses don't mean. If you have any questions on those things, see me in a week and a half. <laughs> In verses 13 and 14, Paul gives reasons for this instruction that women are to posture themselves in submission as learners of the word in the gathered church, not as teachers. For, there's the indicator, for, here's the reason, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Friends, probably the most common arguments by egalitarian Christians who understand this passage to say something different than what I've been preaching this morning is that Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy 2 is, is about a specific situation in a specific culture. So it's an application, really, that can change from culture to culture and age to age. Or they'll say something like this, that, that male headship is a post-fall concept. As the logic goes, in redemption, Christ then restores the roles that the fall distorted. And so men and women once again have, the, have, a, have a sameness in every way in roles in Christ. But friends, do you see how, how Paul's reasoning actually cuts the legs right out from under that? Paul grounds his logic in creation. He says that God created Adam first and then Eve. Friends, Timothy and the church at Ephesus would not have scratched their heads in confusion and been like, oh, I wonder what Paul means by that. No, Adam's priority in creation naturally implies his authority over Eve. God created Adam to image him on the earth and then built Eve from Adam's side to be his helper in the task. It was joint ruling through different yet complementary roles. Just as Adam was created to work and guard the garden under God's dominion and Eve was created to help him in the task, so God calls certain men to guard the perimeter of his new creation institution, the local church. The fact that this biblical logic is cemented in creation, friends, means that it is a universal truth for all churches in all times. Friends, why did God design it this way in the beginning? Why did he create Adam first and then Eve? I don't know. We do not have every answer, but at the end of the day, Friends, we must bow to God's sovereignty as king and acknowledge that because church leadership is tailored to his blueprint at creation, we can be confident that it is the best plan for the maximizing of our good and flourishing together as his people. In verse 14, Paul gives a second argument from Genesis as to the reason Christian women should learn humbly. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, that's creation, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's the fall. What's Paul's point here? Does he mean that, that women are more inherently gullible than men and therefore ought not to be teachers in the church? No. No, Paul is not speaking to any natural inferiority. Friends, listen, if, if, if women were created by God with an inherent weakness, a deficiency in their character that made them more, more vulnerable than men, I think it would call into question the goodness of God's creation, the intrinsic goodness of what he has made. And besides, Paul's instruction for women to teach other women and children, 
If women were gullible, that instruction would be dangerous. Hide your kids, hide your, you know, your wife, right? So he's not saying that women are gullible. Rather, it just it seems that just as Paul referred to, to uh, excuse me, just as Paul referred first to the order of creation, now he refers to the order of the fall. Adam was created first, but Eve sinned first. Adam was created first, but Eve sinned first. And why is that important? Paul's showing us how in the fall, Satan really upended the entire created order as God designed it. He inverted it right on its head. Humanity was created by God to exercise dominion over his creation, including the animals, including snakes. But instead, the snakes slithered up to Eve and questioned its king, or its queen. The snakes subverted male leadership and interacted only with Eve. What should Eve have done in that moment? Eve should have submitted to the leadership of Adam and ultimately the kingship of God. But instead, she thirsted for a goodness that God had not prescribed. She unwisely took the initiative in responding to the snake. And Adam, who the text implies was standing next to Eve the entire time, watched idly by as the snake deceived her. He should have protected Eve and guarded the garden by killing the snake but instead he listened to Eve as she was deceived. He was passive. And ultimately he too clawed after an authority that God had not given him to make his own rules and determine his own reality. God's good authority structure was turned upside down. Friends, if you want proof that male headship preceded the fall, look no further than what the Bible says about humanity's sin. Because guess what? It's not Eve that God holds ultimately responsible. It's not Eve who represents all humanity fallen in sin, but Adam. It's not Eve from whom sin entered the world and through whom infects all of humanity for the rest of time, but it's through Adam. Eve ate first, but Adam was held accountable as the head of the household. The first man refused to lead and the woman was willing to do so. And somehow Satan knew exactly what buttons to push the tempter to doubt God's goodness and care. What's Paul's point? His point is that there are devastating consequences when we claw after a role that God has not given us. It's dangerous to grasp for an authority that we aren't meant to have. Just as Eve should have submitted to Adam and Adam should have led Eve, therefore, Sisters, you are called to do the same in the authority structures of the new creation in the local church. Your spiritual flourishing, your best life as God intended it, comes through obedience in this way. But here's the thing. Here's the good news. Jesus does not ask you, sisters, to do anything that he didn't do. He emptied himself of every divine prerogative that he enjoyed from all eternity. And he condescended to us. The creator took upon himself the frailty of his creatures and he became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. We owe our salvation to the joyful, willing submission 
of Jesus Christ. At the time of her conversion, Rosaria Butterfield was an accomplished tenured professor at Syracuse University. She was a, a leader in the LGBT feminist and scholarly communities. Rosaria has remarkable gifts of leadership, of scholarship, and of oratory, of speaking ability. And when she became a Christian, she thought that surely she could employ these gifts and become a, a teacher and leader within the church. Rosaria writes that when she discovered 1 Timothy 2, 9-15, it felt like a poke in the eye followed by a steady spray of lemon juice. She writes, To me, the issue had a hard edge to it. If male headship preceded the fall, then biblical feminism was an untenable position because everything that preceded the fall was good. The consistency of 1 Timothy 2, 9-15 with all of Scripture became intellectually clear. And I grieved the death of my feminist worldview, the way one might grieve a loved one. It was union with Christ and the sanctification that this births that allowed me to see something. Submission is what Christ did for me at the cross. And therefore, any time that Scripture asks me to model Christ, I trust this is for my good and for his glory. Praise God. In verse 15, Paul closes his argument with a qualifying statement. Just a nice, easy verse to round it out. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Friends, Far from the reality being harsh for women, there is great hope for you, sisters, along with all who turn from their sin to Jesus. Women can have confident hope of future salvation. This is a notoriously tricky verse, so let me frame it in, again in terms of what the verse can't mean. Okay? It can't mean that women are saved from sin through bearing children. That would flip salvation by grace to salvation by work of childbearing. It can't mean that women will be, be preserved for future salvation through childbearing because there are many sisters who never bear children. So how, in fact, would they be preserved? It doesn't mean that God will save a woman physically from death in childbirth because we know that believing women have often died while giving birth. What I think Paul does is that since he's been teaching with Genesis 1 to 3 is kind of the operating system of, of this text, he picks up the reality of Genesis 3.16, the very last verse that Michelle read earlier, that part of the curse of sin in the world is that there will be great pain in childbirth for women. And yet, friends, because of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus, if women continue in faith, hope, and love, they will be saved even through childbearing. In other words, friends, Paul sees the woman's role as mother as kind of, a, kind of a symbol of what makes her uniquely a woman. It's representative of the good works that God has called women to do. Friends, it's not that all Christian women give birth. Many are providentially hindered from doing so. Rather, Paul selects childbearing as the most notable example of the divinely intended differences in roles between men and women. Sisters, Paul says, don't shirk your God-ordained privilege as a woman to grasp for an authority that he didn't ordain for you. Lean into what makes you uniquely a woman. 
I think there are certainly implications here for the high calling of motherhood and domestic life. But beyond that, there is great hope for sisters that as you sisters continue in faith in Christ and love for others and holiness with self-control, you can be confident that you'll be saved on the last day. Just like all of us who come to faith in Jesus, we must persevere in the things to which God has called us. Sister, you won't be saved because your good works like childbearing have merited a salvation like a worker merits a wage. But you will be saved on that last day because your good works like childbearing evidence salvation won for you through the death and resurrection of your Savior. All of us, brothers and sisters, we show the new birth by conforming to the roles that God has ordained for us. Friends, our great hope today our great hope this morning as men and women is not actually that we fulfill our roles flawlessly. In fact, it cannot be due to anything intrinsic about how we've lived our lives. Rather, our hope today, friends, is that actually that God didn't shut things down when Eve was deceived and Adam rebelled. In mercy, God promised Eve that she would be the mother of the living. That from her line, a woman would give birth to a child. And that child would, be, would come to reverse the curse and to undo the effects of the fall and bring his people salvation. Our great hope this morning is not our obedience, but the obedience of our Lord Jesus, who lived and died and rose again to reconcile sinners, sinful men and sinful women to himself. May God give us grace to reflect the beauty of his design for the church and so commend the gospel to others. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we once again come and we just humbly bow before you. We place ourselves underneath your authority as our king. The ultimate authority of Redeeming Grace Church is not John, it's not Steve, it's not Bo, it's not even us together. The ultimate authority is you, Lord Jesus. So we ask that you would have your way with us as a church. We ask that we would joyfully submit ourselves to what you have prescribed for your church. Not necessarily what we might want for it. For Lord Jesus, help the men of this church to take their obligation and privilege seriously to be the spiritual pace setters of the church. Oh Lord, if any have been sitting passively on the sideline, oh, help them to re-engage. By grace, to follow Jesus who died for them. Oh God, our life is not our own. We are bought with a price. So let us then glorify God in our body, in our spirit, which are God's. For the women in the church, I pray, Father, that uh, the sisters here would pursue the right type of beauty. Oh, Lord, not just in what they wear, but in how they worship. Oh, Lord, I pray that you might cause the women of RGC to be, be towering oak trees of righteousness, deeply rooted in sound doctrine, eager to help one another, serving the church in every way. Oh, help us as men to encourage our sisters in the faith and build our church up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.